Welcome to the show. Great to be with you. Deacon Adam has kind of found my 80s jam there. <laughs> Have you not? I love perusing through this uh, library of music it's here. good stuff. Welcome to the show, Paul George, right here for the show in studio with my good friend, Deacon Adam Conk. We're actually recording on a Friday, so it kind of feels different, you know? feels good. feels good. There's just something about Friday. There's something about Friday, the energy man. in the air is different. Yeah. What a week. I just got back from the hill country of Texas, San, outside of San Antonio. You you don't realize like there, there's like it's kind of mountainous in a sense. Like just you know you could be way up high on, and on the top of these just beautiful you know kind of mountainous area. You know we had mass up there, led a men's retreat. It was awesome. Sounds amazing. Yeah, I mean there's few things as glorious to people from South Louisiana as mountains and hills. Right. When I mean, you just can't get over it. You're like, oh my goodness. Yeah, like these exist. <laughs> what are and, these? And y'all look at these every day. What are those? But it sounds amazing. So y'all had y'all had like an outdoor retreat type thing? Yeah, it was a men's retreat, you know, in the hill country. We did, you know, mass outdoors and hiking and like skeet shooting. We did some hunting. Of course we had, you know, did Liturgy, the hour prayer, you know, adoration, confession, like, but just all eight fellowship. It was, it was great. It was really fascinating. Yeah. I'm leading these things called renew retreats and just kind of all over for men, women. I'm not leading the women's, but organize them couples, married couples, but the men's retreats specifically are kind of, kind of have a little bit of adventure to them. It's pretty, pretty awesome. That does sound pretty awesome. Yeah. So it went well. Yeah, we actually had our uh, one of the guys brought a drone, you know, and flew it over, you know, and I, sh- I show- showed you the video. Yeah, that's incredible. The drone flying over as, you know, mass is happening out, just out on this mountain. It's, it was unbelievable. It was great. Some of these guys, some of these guys who came on the retreat, and it kind of is just like, it's like, invitation in a sense of like not exclusive but Mm. you can only take so many it's kind of a small group you know retreat like 10 guys but it happens just by like one guy inviting another guy and inviting another guy and you know like it's it's Mm -hmm. very just relational and organic and and uh invitational you know and it just kind of happens that way and the majority of guys that came i would say probably over half of the guys uh had never in their life been on a retreat before. That's awesome. Ever. Like they well their expectations from this point on might be pretty high. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Set the standard pretty high. And look, to their credit, they had no idea where they were going. Like they, mm. they you know, they trusted the invitation. Now there were some things that like, hey, we're going to kind of do this and this. And there were some cool things that kind of would attract them like the outdoors or the hunting, whatever. Mm. But for the most part, like they just kind of trusted the invitation and what was going to happen. And uh, we obviously had a priest with us too who loved the outdoors. And it just was great. Like, it, you know, so much just happens around the campfire and the dinner table and then, you know, the prayer time and the fellowship and whatnot. But as I'm hearing you describe it, I'm, I'm thinking of, I guess, our Lord and the Holy Land and how he liked to do ministry. Because, I mean, First of all, in the Gospels, how many times do we see that, follow me, and I have no idea where we're going, and there's all, you know, there's an adventure, and there's a lot of time outside, and there's a lot of campfires, I'm sure, but in the, 
in the past 2,000 years, I mean, how many people have had profound events with Christ or experiences that begin with, I got invited to something, I had no idea what to expect, but went on this adventure, you know? Yeah. No, it is built a lot around the model of Jesus who, you know, in a, in a, in a, in a weird way to think about it is, you know, he spent three years with a small group, mm-hmm. you know, and yeah, he a preached to the masses group, yeah. and... You know, he fed the masses and he, you know, talked to the masses, but he was captured at his best in these moments with small groups in in homes, these one-on-one encounters and his small group of disciples, right? And there's no denying that he did that. Like that is sort of the model of, of how he approached ministry, an invitation to follow and to walk together, right? And that is about as human as you can get mm-hmm. in, in like living. You know, I invite you. We experience something together, and we walk together, and 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 then it it just happens. You know, so these are smaller, and we've kind of like in the past, at least in in a lot of in my experience as someone who has done a lot of events and spoken at conferences and been all over, and you have as well. Like, is we, you know, the past like sort of like. 20, 30 years in the church is, is like been this like ramp up, like these big events and everything's got to be mm-hmm. big and we don't want to leave anyone out. And, you know, these huge conferences and, you know, yada, yada. And those are bore fruit. I mean, you and I have experienced personally fruit from being at oh, some yeah. of those and many people have. And that is not to say that those aren't and don't do well at all. But I always said, even when I spoke at those conferences, is some, people do not go home from a an experience at a conference or something like that into relationships with other folks and a small group or, or accountability group or men's or women's or couples and walk together. They get lost mm-hmm. because you begin to live in isolation and in a silo. And then as a disciple, as a Christian, we're not meant to live that way. We're not meant to walk that way. Yeah. So these are sort of, although it's not flashy in a sense of like, man, we had a hundred people. You know, we had a waiting list. <laughs> it's really, let, let, let's be okay with like being small mm-hmm. because that's what Jesus did and let, let it just kind of go from there. So what you can do with a small group of people over some time is like, you could just really dive in. Yeah. When you see this in the gospels many, many times, right? The big crowd is a certain experience. And a lot of people met Jesus for the first time in that big crowd. They did. But also that one-on-one invitation in a small group, that's how a lot of people also met Jesus. And one leads to the other, right? So like when our Lord, when Andrew met our Lord um, and then brought Peter, you know, Peter met Jesus for the first time one-on-one, but then that led him to the big crowd experiences. But he continued to journey with the Lord in that small group, right? So every time he had an experience, he processed it with the Lord in a small group. And then the big crowd people, if they didn't find a small group, they didn't follow the Lord closely like that, they eventually left. I mean, like in John chapter 6, the big crowd's there, he preaches the Eucharist, and it got too hard, and they just went away. Mm-hmm. And the ones that stayed were the small group, right? Yep. Where else can we go? You have the words of everlasting life. Yeah. And so it, wherever we meet the Lord for the first time in this way, whether it's a big or small event, one one leads to the other, but it's it's that small, intimate relationship with the Lord and a small group of disciples that actually allows us to process the Christian life year after year. Amen. Okay, 
Stig and Adam, Paul George. Um, thanks for listening in on Caleb T Radio or on the podcast. Uh, do you have a have you seen? What did you say? That is so interesting. Oh, for real though. Yeah. So congratulations, everyone. I don't know if you know you know this, but on October fourteenth, we have a new world record in the United States of America. Is this your have you seen? Yeah. Okay. There's a new Guinness World Record for the largest pocket knife. Ooh. Yes. Do you have to have the largest pocket? As well, well, like I don't. The understand. story doesn't mention that. Okay. Because what what makes it not a just a knife, right? You're right. For it to be a pocket knife, there must be a pocket for it to go into. <laughs> That's what I'm assuming. Like, don't you know? I'm just assuming for it to be a pocket knife, it has to fit in a pocket. Now, maybe it's just the way it it folds. What? I'd be shocked if this thing can fit in a pocket because uh, well, it's in Ratcliffe, Kentucky, at the Museum of American Pocket Knives. So there's a Museum of American Pocket. Is there knives. a picture of this? Oh yeah, it's a 34 foot six inch folding knife. That weighs fifteen hundred pounds. Whoa, and four feet. So it just keeps folding over and over and it over. It actually folds, apparently. And the Guinness Book of World Records went out there on October fourteenth, just yesterday, and said this is indeed the world's largest pocket knife. So maybe for it to be a pocket knife is that it folds. Yes. Because it obviously fifteen hundred pounds is not going to fit into a pocket. Right. And, and you know, I I'm mean, assuming. If, yeah, it has to be a pretty large pocket, and a person, and a person. So <laughs> to hold it in the pocket. <laughs> um, Jason Bosham, co-owner of the Red Hill Cutlery, which is the mastermind who built okay. this. So they built a knife you can't use, right? Well, to it's, set it's a, a record. statue. It's a statue. Yeah. Okay. Um, but the Guinness Book of World Records did require that the folding folding knife be fully functional, so they had to test it, and okay. so they took cranes. To close it. And opened and closed it to show Guinness. It's a lot of money to get the record. (laughs) Um, They also created it so that it could endure tornadoes and ice storms because of where they live. Mm. Because they don't want it to break over time. So put that on your bucket list, folks. World's biggest pocket knife. Well, I'm so glad that you, (laughs) that that's a thing. It's kind of a, wow. (laughs) To build something you can't use. You know, yeah. You'd be like, "Hey, let me use my knife." Wait, I gotta go get a crane mm-hmm. to open it up. Yeah, a little, yeah. little inconvenient, but I guess <laughs> I don't know. Maybe for those guys, it's like, "Look what we did." Well, and some things draw people, you know. And I guess, I mean, no offense to them. But I'm sure if I was driving through that area of Kentucky, you said yes, Kentucky. And I was like, "What? There's nothing to do here." And they're like, <laughs> "Yes, there is. There's a museum with the largest pocket knife." I'd probably just go to see it. Yeah. Because there was nothing to do and whatever. Well, if they let you drive the crane to open and close it, now that'd be something, <laughs> right? I'd pay ten bucks for that. Did you put your finger in there, man. <laughs> that's yeah, that's crazy. So that's the story. There's another. Have you seen? If you like that. Oh, you got two. Oh, okay. I got two today. All right. So you ever look at a piece of modern art and just think, you know, like let's say it's on sale for four hundred thousand dollars and you're like literally my kindergartner could could draw that you're right like throw paint up against the wall yeah and you're just confused mm-hmm. so this uh became an issue also for a man named jens Hanning, who's um danish and what he decided to do is kind of poke fun at this reality so he somehow sold a piece of art before it went on um display by hyping it up so he Told everybody he's gonna he's this new artist, whatever, and he sold it for eighty four thousand dollars. And the title of it was Take the Money and Run. 
And when it went on display, finally. And this is all marketing. It's just all, all marketing. hype. He, he used the same circles where they sell art over and over. He sold it for $84,000. Dude, we're, we could get into something here. <laughs> this is good. So he entitled it, Take the Money and Run. Um, they were furious, the person who bought it. Were they? Furious. Now it's probably worth something. Well, he said, the, the person who bought it said, this is a breach of contract. He said, of course it's a breach of contract. That's part of the art. So part of this art is how silly this all is, that I was able to sell a blank canvas for $84,000. That's part of the art. And so they're in a legal batter, battle about this. But uh, I don't know who this guy is, but he would actually make a great evangelist. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you can market a blank canvas, you could sell Jesus. Like, honestly, like, he'd, he would make, like, imagine this. Like, if you took some of the most talented people in the world, and or you just took all the people in the world and used their talents, because we all have different gifts and talents, right? Mm-hmm. And everyone just oriented those gifts and talents to like make make the kingdom better, like serve the kingdom of God to bring Jesus to others. You imagine? Like could you imagine? Like if that guy took the energy that he had, right, to say that, okay, I'm just gonna like throw painting against the wall, but what I'm really gonna do is I'm just gonna sell this like to people and make them believe that this is worth something. And he actually did that, right? Worth $84,000. Yeah, so $84,000, someone bought it. Imagine if he took that, you know, ingenuity, that innovation, and said, I'm going to think of creative ways to, and I'm going to be so passionate that I'm going to bring people to the faith. What he could do. Yeah. Right? And part of what we were talking about on this men's retreat is it was kind of like, kind of building up into you know obviously ending and and guys going back home to their parishes their families you know was exactly sort of that like like for men particularly like i think in the dna of a man is like just we're built to to do like to to build to go to serve and not that not that uh, women aren't. I'm, I'm just saying, like, for men, like, the desire is, is, is like, you know, I just don't want I, want, I want to do something, right? Mm. That could be a distraction from, like, opening your heart to God and surrendering, you know, and receiving. But once that happens in a man, like, there's a sense of mission. What can I do now? What can I do? I don't want to just go home and, like, you know, clean my pool every afternoon and like think that I have no purpose outside of work and my family. Right. Yeah. And I was just talking to these guys kind of about like this is like, imagine if everyone in this room, like we had some extremely talented guys, businessmen, like people from every walks of life. You say, if we, if you and I like took all of our talent and like served the Lord, what would happen? And, like, the discussion just blew up in a good way of guys just, like, the, you know, I've never, you know, like, I never thought of, like, what could I do? You know, like, what if we didn't sit around and complain about the lack of what the church is doing and became the solution? And you took your business acumen and your creativity and your, you know, forethought and your vision and your, you know, ability to organize and plan and administrate and just serve God with it. 
in whatever way you could, right, outside of your your family and and your your work, where that is sacred work, right? Mm. The impact that you can make, and I'm thinking this guy, man, like imagine, you know. So those of you listening, sitting there is like, you know, God calls us all to like serve Him, you know, to not only that, like to to make our current work like dignified, like it has meaning and purpose, but at the same time, to to have a sense of purpose and mission of serving God and, and bringing His love to others. Well, this is one of the radical transformations in all of our Christian walks is that we begin to realize that holiness and sainthood is not somewhere out there or sometime in the future, but it's always very close and right now. And when we read people that actually became saints, like St. Therese and others, they don't describe a journey for us that is somewhere out there for some other time, but they show exactly what you just said, that the things we do every day can be done with the purpose of serving the Lord Jesus, right? And if it's done that way, number one, yeah, we can make a huge impact in the world, but number two, God begins to entrust us with more and more and more. Um, how many parables did he give about this, where he entrusts a servant with a little, the, the servant does a good job with it, so he gives that servant a lot more? And how many of us, after years of our Christian walk, we could be doing so much more for the Lord if we would have just taken those first steps, right? Those things he was calling us to do at work, those things he was calling us to do in our neighborhood, in our relationships, in our extended family. If we would have been obedient and said, all right, Lord, I'll say this or I'll do this because you're, you've given me these gifts and talents and I have this ability. Well, that becomes a lifelong adventure with the Lord to serve him in all kinds of ways we've never imagined. And he tells us, anyone who's given up house, lands, Sisters, brothers, like anything from me receives a hundredfold. Part of that hundredfold is in the adventure of saying yes and doing the work he calls us to. Absolutely. You know, I don't know. I, th- I, I think sometimes we feel like we have to do something great or nothing at all. Mm-hmm. Right? And I think what's lacking more than anything is just a sense of passion. You know, we become apathetic. We just become, you know mediocre mundane like just kind of like we just kind of coast you know dead men walking yeah and realizing like around us are dead men walking dead people just you know just waiting for someone to invite them to love them to encourage them to see them to ask them a question to pray with them like honestly like and when we begin to have that fervor and that foresight that like Every moment of my my life is is a is a moment to to serve God and like and to just use my natural gifts to do that. Like if we all did that, like imagine like the the soil that would be tilled up and the seeds that would be planting and and the fruits that would grow and and the <clears throat> solutions that would happen within the church and you know I I constantly and you and I are kind of in this world and and you as a deacon even probably more so but i'm tired of hearing i don't mind lay people standing up and calling the church to holiness and and to like clean things up but i am tired of hearing lay people complain and think that the clergy is the only solution to do everything we're we're averaging 
in our country, less than one priest per parish. Mm. And we're going to look at that guy and be like, you're the solution. You're, you're going to do everything. It's crazy. Mm. Like it's time for like people to like rise up and wake up and join in mission with our clergies, our priests and deacon and religious and say together, together, we're going to do great things for the kingdom. Yeah, this reminds me, if you forgive the analogy, but yesterday my family and I went to this uh, forgiven wildlife uh, refuge type thing, and you drive through it on this little caravan, and there's hundreds, I think they said 3,600 animals. Exotic. Exotic, yeah. all non-predatory, so they live you know, in harmony with each other. But every two hours this tour comes through. Yeah, there's no lions that are going right. to eat the zebra. And every two hours this this tour bus comes through and all the animals literally follow it for the next hour because you feed it. You get yeah. this food to feed the thing. Like little buckets you can feed the... Yeah. yeah. And I was just thinking, man, this is a pretty sweet deal for these animals because there's no predators, all the room they can want, and every two hours it's more to grow. You yeah. Know, like, and it, Free food. Pretty sweet. But I was thinking about how different that is from the animal experience out in the wild, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and you begin to adapt. And so these animals' lives, you know, this, this train coming through every two hours is a big deal in their life, and they don't have to worry about predators. So all those skills, all those abilities, all those instincts they have get dulled over time. Not to say that this is bad, what's going on to the animals, but as you're talking about this idea of, of kind of lay people waking up to be active in the church, our environment does have an effect to lull us to sleep. And to create a, a church that's very safe, a church that it, not much is expected of us, a church that we just, you know, that little train comes around once a week and we go to it, we go to Mass, you know, we get Dude. the Eucharist. Yeah, it's a good analogy. <laughs> and like, and we, just, we just get used to that life, repeat over and over. Um, and you see hmm. lay people really come alive when there's danger. Hmm. You know, like I, as you were speaking too, I was thinking of St. Charles Luanga. St. Charles Luanga was barely a lay person when he was, he died for the faith. He was a catechist. He had become Catholic a year before he was martyred. He was a layperson, and he affected so many people just from his one year of lay Christianity, lay Catholicism. Um, but it was the danger that created the scenario where he, his instincts, that spiritual instincts in us, our faith, our hope, our charity, God's Holy Spirit in us can come alive and, and face the danger. But the reality is, Paul, is that I think part of the awakening process is that we realize as lay people, we're actually not in that safe little park. The world is not a safe little park, mm. and the church is not a safe little park. And we, we may not be outright persecuted like in Africa when, when Charles Luanga died, but there's plenty of danger to go around. And I think an awareness of the fight that's needed, an awareness of the needs all around us, the awareness of our brothers and sisters in our neighborhoods that can die without knowing Jesus if we don't go talk to them, being aware of all these things may awaken in us all those instincts, spiritual instincts God puts in us by the Holy Spirit to come alive and, and spread the faith. I love how you're, I'm just thinking of you as a dad sitting on this like, you know, tractor ride through the safari, mm -hmm. you know, and your eight kids and y'all are just having a family day. Yeah. And at the same time, like your mind's thinking of this analogy, right? Well, dude, and I, and I, I love it. Yeah. Because I fed the gazelle. Yeah. I'm not going to do that in the wild. The no, gazelle's not going to trust me. But it's me. true. Like, I think our our tendency is that we want to, like, fence ourselves in mm. and, like, protect ourselves from, like, the world and, like, the hatred and, and, and 
and everything that's out there. And the reality is as Christians is that we're called into it to like, and it is that healthy fear that keeps our faith alive. That's like, no, like there's a sense of urgency. There's no urgency when you're going through the motions and you're just like weekly going to the Pez dispenser to get the Eucharist. And mm -hmm. it's just like, uh, there's no urgency. And that's what needs to wake up in all of us. And what was great about seeing some of these men wake up on this mountain, you know, this weekend. All right, we'll take a break and we'll be right back. The Paul George Show is made possible in part by our partners at Solidarity HealthShare. Solidarity is the Catholic solution to the healthcare problem. Are you paying too much for your healthcare cost? Solidarity HealthShare is a healthcare sharing ministry which provides an ethical way to fund healthcare costs while protecting and practicing our Catholic beliefs. Best yet, Solidarity HealthShare's members are exempt from the fines and penalties in the Affordable Care Act. Visit SolidarityHealthShare.org. That's SolidarityHealthShare.org. Welcome back to the show. Great to be with you. Thanks for listening in today on the radio, KLFT Radio here in Acadiana, Lafayette, where we do live, <laughs> or on the podcast, wherever you are, feel free to share it. You know, we're all in a better mood when summer's over. I can just tell everyone that. Oh, yeah. Summer's over. Hurricane season's over. Fall's here. Tomorrow it's going to be in the 70s. It's going to be Sunny. Amazing. It's just like life's better when that is going on. Yes. You know. Well, and that, I mean, our, our global pandemic, at least locally, is also in the big decline. So people are kind of breathing more easily. And, uh, you know, so it's a good time to visit with people, too. Yeah. And, hey, it's just a great time to be alive in South Louisiana. Yeah, it's interesting that you were – I had no idea what your week was like because I was out of town, and, and I didn't know you went on that safari, <laughs> um, which I've been to that place when my kids were smaller. And um, But this week, like, the ranch that we were doing this retreat is they had, you know, a ranch that you drive through to get to the other place, the exotic animals all over. You know, but you can shoot them. High fence. Right? You know, there's zebras. There's all sorts of different deer. You and you can hunt some of them, but it's more so just the beauty of it. Like yeah. they, they have them there and all types of animals. There's no predator animals either, but they're more exotic type animals that you would, you know, yeah, like hunt or whatever. But just, yeah, just beautiful. And just seeing them just run loose in nature and, you know, be out there uh, is crazy. But they get so used to being fenced in and sort of protected that you know they're not really afraid of anything right you know right yeah and there was a species of deer i guess there were a couple of them there but they said they're extinct in the wild and they're only alive at places like this and they've tried to reintegrate them into the wild but they don't survive because their instincts for survival and for fighting and for all these things are just gone so it, that really had me thinking you know about myself and what instincts, and again, when I say spiritual instincts, what I mean is those gifts of the Holy Spirit given to us at baptism, that God has given us everything we need to live a, a saintly spiritual life, you know, but those instincts need to be awakened, they need to be, um, they need to be lived by, like I need to invest in them, and if I don't, they just get lulled quietly to sleep, and so that's the scenario of a baptized, confirmed Catholic 
who consumes the Eucharist every week can live the exact same life as somebody who is not baptized, is not confirmed, or has not received the Eucharist. It fascinates me and how true it is to easily let those instincts that God's give us, those inspirations of the Holy Spirit, just be not listened to and lulled to sleep over time. Yeah, you know, a um, friend of ours, priest who actually came with me on the retreat, um, it was awesome, Father Father Donald Bernard, and he talked about that. He's like, you know, like the people today, you just want to say, well, you know, Father, I'm a good person, you know, and this just this idea of just being a good person is enough, you know, and and then like that is what satisfies our deepest longing is that I'm a good person. Well, you know, for the most part, like everyone's a good person. Like we all have good in us, you know, and there are evil people who do evil things. Yes. And horrible things. But, you know, we don't come across bad people much, you know, and if, if the standard for our life is just to be a good person, then that doesn't really fulfill me, you know, like it doesn't like I can, I can do a good deed with no real, like, we're not really thinking about it. At the end of the day, like I'm not really much more happier, you know, I'm a good person, right? Like mm. God has much more for us than just being a good person. Like this call to sainthood and to holiness and to like joy and to peace and to like real depth of meaning, right? Um, and mission is more than just being a good person, right? And and if our evangelization efforts or our role as disciples and Christians is to be satisfied with people being just being a good person, and that's where we stop, is like, well, we, then we're just kind of what you said. We've just lulled to sleep, you know, which is interesting because this Sunday is, you know, the feast or the honor of St. Ignatius of Antioch, right? And Ignatius is one of the oldest saints that we have. You know, outside of like the disciples. I mean, this guy was died in 107. That it's we pretty know. early. That's early. That means he lived before that, by the way. Everybody is <laughs> listening. It's like, I mean, we have Ignatius's writings all the way back to the to you know the you know 80s, 90s. You know, like think about that. Like mm-hmm. this guy was around the early early church. And converted Christianity and became a bishop of Antioch. And most famous, really, for his, like, you know, writings that we have. You know, we consider him a father of the church, yeah, Antioch. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And he had a close encounter with a wild beast himself. Well, and that's, the, <laughs> which is crazy that we're talking about, like, these animals and exotics is like Ignatius was martyred, you know, which for a lot of the early Christians, this was, this was their destiny. And we just kind of shrugged that off, right? But his martyrdom, when he was met by, by the lions in the, in the circus, Maximus, you know, like he was fed by lions. And in one of his last letters, he begged, he begged his friends or the people or his followers, faithful, to not stop his martyrdom, that he wanted to face the lions. I mean, think about the courage and the boldness that he wanted to live and his life to speak is like, no, don't, don't hide me. Don't protect me. I want to face the lions. And, and sure enough, like, like that's where, that's where he met his death and ultimately met, met the Lord was getting (laughs) wild lions. Mm -hmm. Lord, what? Yeah. And I think as, as 
Christian men, we want to follow people like this. And one of, one of the struggles we have in our country, I think, Paul, is that we don't have martyrs yet. We don't have someone who died to do that here. Now we have people who came from other places and died here, like St. Isaac Jogues, um, who were martyred here. But like, I can't go to a tomb that's within a drive or a plane ride of someone like St. Ignatius of Antioch and be inspired, right? Like I have to go somewhere far. And so the, the witness of the martyrs of the church is kind of a distant witness for us here in the United States. And instead, we have to look to men that seem like great leaders, you know, um, but men that have gone all the way. Now, Stanley, Father Stanley Rother was martyred in Guatemala. He's buried in Oklahoma. So that's the closest we got. Yes, that's, that's true. And that is, a, that is an important thing. And I think as men, we have to make martyrdom the standard because a lot of us, Paul, we want to talk to men and, and hype up their masculine leadership, you know, like lead your wives, lead your families, and that's great, you know. But the call to be a martyr is the most manly call on the church. The call to face the lion, the call to lay down your life and let yourself die on that cross the way Jesus did, like that call is the manly call of, of all of our men. And I, I love the story of St. Ignatius, and I, I, I wish, you know, people like St. Ignatius of Antioch seemed close to us because this is a real man who really lived in a real time who really died for Jesus. You know, he it's not really a fairy did. tale. Yeah, it's not a, it's not a myth, you know, which is crazy to think that we historically have information on Ignatius, right? From, you know, he died in the year 107. So I don't, I don't know how old he was when he died. I don't know if we actually have his age, but just say that he lived 50 years. Mm. I don't know. So he was around 50. You know, he was maybe born around 50. You know, think about that. Yeah. You know, so he was in close relationship with, with the early apostles. Yeah. And we have information on this cat and, you know, his conversion you know, I would love to know what his conversion was more like, you know, to do a little bit more research on that. But he, you know, I think he was friends with Augustine. No. Or he I was guess. before Augustine, right? Before Augustine, yeah. yeah. Um, who was he partners with? Ignatius of Antioch. Well. Is he a trailblazer? Well, I mean, Antioch was that ancient center of Christianity. It's where we first called people Christians and then first called people Catholics, mm, right? That's Antioch. Right. And, um,. And so, yeah, it was definitely like one of the original, you know, OG Christian communities. Um, but, you know, as a man... You know, OG meaning... Original gangster. Yeah, there. <laughs> original. <laughs> That's good. That's good. OG that. Christians. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, as, as a man, you know, that it's part of every man's desire to actually have what it takes to give ourselves away, like to, to fight the thing, you know? And it's easy, I think, as men to look at men in our community politically or even in the church and say like, oh, that man is a great man because they lead well, because they have what it takes to lead. And often a lot of our leaders are some of the most insecure people and we just don't know it, right? But you, you've realized this as you've talked to people, right? Like whether it's a politician or even people in the church, like behind a lot of um, great leadership in men is often a lot of sense of inadequacies and insecurities that we all have. It's not like, 
you know. But for whatever reason, God puts certain men into certain positions. And when it comes to martyrs, we know that there's deep within the fundamental desire to do this all for Jesus, which is not true of every leader. It's not true of every man in our life, you know. Even when we see great leadership in the in politics and whatever else, in business, even in the church, is it for Jesus, right? Like, are they doing this? Is this man actually giving themselves to the Lord? And St. Ignatius of Antioch had literally no other motivation than for Jesus and for the church. Um, this was why he did what he did, and this is why he faced the lions. And this is why I think he's such a great motivation for us men is that, you know, there's a lot of mixed motivations we can have to lead, lead our families, lead our communities, lead our church. Um, but St. Ignatius is a great gut check. The only reason is for Christ. Like, that's the valuable reason. To be eaten by lions. Yeah, what other reason is there to be eaten by lions? But, you know, I want to go back to some of the points that you were making. And I think for all of us listening, you know, there's no no need to, for us to live in fear. Although that's a natural emotion to feel. Like, so it's not like, hey, we're all, we need to be absent of fear to be a Christian. No, but in our fear to trust that Jesus is with us, right? Like, so there are a lot of things that we're afraid of. And so this idea of, like, you know, Ignatius being eaten by lions, it, w- it was common practice for Christians to lose their lives for, for, for the Lord, right? But to remember that their life being lost or martyred, was it was not lost. Like, there was great meaning in that because it motivated the cr- Christians to live even more fervently, which the people who were persecuting Christians thought, if we kill the Christians, then they'll just stop. Mm-hmm. And the opposite happened, right? Oh, if we kill the Christians, now they're they're becoming stronger and stronger, which is what your point was earlier, right? Like, like when we face the adversity out there, we actually become stronger. And then, you know, when when Christians are waking up, and I think we've just been a sleeping giant, you know, in a lot of ways. And so we we talk about martyrdom. People are afraid to just be martyred in humility, to be embarrassed, to have the courage to invite someone to church to because they're afraid to be rejected. You know, men are afraid to like lead their families because they don't know how, they don't know how to pray with their wife. And and I don't mean to sound insensitive, but we just need to get over those things. Because like if we just sit in like this like you know, this self-loathing of I can't do that and I'm afraid to do that. We will never move forward. And so, you know, we just need to be okay with failing at it, failing at trying, right? Failing Mm -hmm. at inviting, failing at leading, failing at praying with our family, failing at, you know, inviting our, our, our friends and coworkers and, failing at praying with people, failing at telling people about Jesus and failing in a sense of like, just realizing you're not going to be perfect at it. Yeah. It's okay. Like it's all up to God anyway. Like he just uses us, but it, everything else is up to God making it happen. We, we, you and I and everyone else save no one. We don't save anybody. I mean, how arrogant of us to think that we would ever save anybody. No, God just uses us to invite, to encourage, to love, and his grace does everything else. God's presence makes a heart open up and 
and receive and God is there. And, but without us, like people don't come to know the Lord or wake up through osmosis. Right. Well, and look what happens. I mean, most of our country is Christian. A fourth ish is Catholic Christian. And look at where our country is. Like how, you know, if, I mean, look at back in Ignatius of Antioch. It was not 25% of the population that was Christian at the time, right? Like a very small group had such an impact that the empire had to start putting them to death because they were afraid of them, right? Like a very small group. And yet here we are, 25% of the country's population, even more if you include non-Catholic Christians, and no one's afraid of us. No. No one's afraid of us. No one's afraid of Catholics, especially like when you look at like what the media portrays a Catholic or politics or, you know, people are like, oh, that's, that's easy. I can do whatever I want. And I think a lot of the Catholics who are like trying to live the faith and be disciples are like, no, that's not it. Like, that's not what it means, you know, Mm. but we're, we're just kind of like, are so used to like no one standing up that we just don't say anything or do anything. And, and I say all that because like, I'm just as convicted about praying about like, what's my response to the culture? Like what, yeah, I need to love my neighbor and do things, but I also probably should be more vocal and stand up for truth and be more bold and be okay with being humiliated or, you know, rejected. Or getting it wrong a few times, right? Getting it wrong a few times, you know? Yeah. You know, it's kind of crazy. It is. And so, you know, I'm all in, Paul. Let's do it. Let's. You are you. I let's mean, stop being afraid. <laughs> let's start making other people afraid of us. And I don't mean that like we're going to hurt people as Christians. I just mean, I mean, what the empire was afraid of was losing their power, losing their, you know, the institution because Christians were spreading. And people become afraid of us when they realize that Christianity is growing and not dwindling. And the reason why other people other than Christians would not be afraid of us is because they realize we're a dying group, losing our influence, losing our members, right? And this is actually true statistically. So the way people become afraid of us is that we start growing again and we start influencing our communities. Um, I mean, how many of us in South Louisiana have been impacted by our faith? Because, Like, for example, in the Lafayette area, there's no abortion mills. And the reason why that is is because of the faith of this area made sure of that. You know, and the doctors of this area many years ago made sure of that, that this area would be a pro-life area, and it's it stayed that way, right? Um, that's the kind of thing that makes other people afraid of us because if Christianity, if our faith is actually influencing and growing in our culture, then other people's powers are threatened. And so if no one's afraid of us, that means we're not growing and we're not influencing the culture around us. That's it. All right, let's take a break and we'll be right back. The Paul George Show is made possible in part by our partners at Solidarity HealthShare. Solidarity is the Catholic solution to the healthcare problem. Are you paying too much for your healthcare cost? Solidarity HealthShare is a healthcare sharing ministry which provides an ethical way to fund healthcare costs while protecting and practicing our Catholic beliefs. Best yet, Solidarity HealthShare's members are exempt from the fines and penalties in the Affordable Care Act. Visit SolidarityHealthShare.org. That's SolidarityHealthShare.org. (laughs) 
Welcome back to the show. Great to be with you. Thanks for listening in. Feel free to share the show on the podcast or wherever you are. That'd be great. And for everyone listening here in KLFT Radio in the great Acadiana. It's great. It's great. It's great to be back, I'm sure. But I'm, I'm sure you had a great time in Texas, it sounds like. Tejas. I did. Great food, man. Just beautiful time. What kind of food? Lots of authentic Mexican, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. which in Texas you find that. But the place we were staying kind of, that was kind of their thing. And some steaks. I mean, it was just a good, yeah, I don't want to get too into it because uh, <laughs> you get really hungry. But, I mean, if you're going to have a guy's retreat, like, you got to eat well. Yeah. You know, you, you know, there's something about, like, you know, the way to a guy's heart is through his stomach. I mean, and there's no lying there. Mm-hmm. You know? It's true. Like, I want guys to say like hey what was the best part of the retreat and and their first thing is like okay besides the food <laughs> yes besides the food because like that is like so much happens around like not good food to guys and and the fellowship around the table you know i mean we see that yeah. with jesus we were talking about that in the first segment is like jesus ate with people what you know he didn't eat of course you know the five thousand yeah but when he ate with people he went into their homes and the disciples or with a family, he ate with people. They they had community and conversation and those things were probably fascinating conversations about life and they probably laughed and cried and whatever. So much happens around the dinner table and we've talked about on the show before, even family's not doing that. Like the what happens at like so much of like just our formation as a fan like our family has just happened over dinner, like the dinners that we've had, like over the years, the the good and bad dinners, like the, mm-hmm. you know, the, and it's just like, and I see it now as the kids get older, like the conversations that happen, it's just like, you know, and so with, with the guys, it's like, man, like, you got to eat. Yeah. What's part know? of that shared experience? I mean, I'm sure when they get together for their reunion, like a year from now, or if they see each other. Do you remember the food? Oh my goodness! Oh yeah, we're gonna bake and wrap those quail and chucker, and cook them and. Gosh. Oh yeah, definitely. That sounds good. Mm. Yeah, I mean it's gonna be good. You remember your really good meals, and you also remember the really bad meals. You do. Yeah, but no bad ones this week, man. Not a one. Yeah. <laughs> so, and I knew you like good food. I think a lot of people read to sign up for the next retreat. Yeah. All right. Uh, how about we do a six-pack of questions? What did you say? That is so interesting. Oh, for real, though? So, question number one, um, we're talking about this this great men's retreat you were at this past week in Texas, and you mentioned skeet shooting. Um, so my question number one is, how good are you of a skeet shooter? I'm fairly good. Really? Yeah. And how do you measure that? See, I've never done it, so I don't know how to measure... Just how many clays you hit per ones that are, you know, there's some people that like do it all the time. Like that, some people play golf all the time and they're mm-hmm. good because they practice. Some people like that's a sport to them, clay shooting. But, you know, because I, you know, I, I do haunt and shoot more, you know, like so skeet shooting, clay shooting, I would statistically hit a fairly good amount. I wouldn't hit all of them. Right. You know, there's, there's failure, failure in those for sure. Like, like baseball, you know, you're going to fail more than you succeed, but right. 
So yeah, you would base it on like, you know, if there were 10, how many did you hit? I hit seven, you know, 70%. Seven of the 10, wow. Whatever. You know, yeah. I'm just making something up. You know, if you hit three out of 10, 30%, it's like, yeah, you're okay, but not that good. <laughs> but it's okay. It's okay. It's fine. And part of like with the guys is like, some of those guys had never shot a shotgun before, you know? And mm-hmm. so like the cool part of like just experiencing that together and building each other up and like even in their failure or like their i don't know how to do this like that's cool you know a lot of people didn't have dads to show them that and like to encourage them like and i think men particularly love to pretend that they have it all together and that is a lie Mm -hmm. we need other guys to encourage us and like build us up and like call us out in a good way yeah nice all right question number two we talked about the world's largest pocket knife in yeah, uh, Kentucky. I forgot about that. Yeah, yeah. So if you're going to put the world largest something in your yard, yep. what, what would it be? Ooh, that's it. Hmm. You know what I always loved? I mean, I'm just like totally reaching here. <laughs> Either one or two things. Okay. The world's largest tree house. Really? Yeah, like how fun. You could sleep in it. I mean, if it's the world's largest, I mean, it would be like... Huge, probably. The best treehouse ever. Wow. You can stay in there. That's a good choice. Yeah. Or I've always been fascinated. If you've ever driven by like a a veteran's memorial or something, you know, and there's a there's a like a fighter jet that's like on a like a pole, you know, it's like in front of the building. I would yeah. how I've always wanted to climb in one of those things. And you can't, like it's a model. Right. I would have the world's largest fighter jet. Those are two really great choices I, right off the cuff. Thank Good you. Good job. Yeah. You, I had no idea where that question was going, but you got it. Question number three. So we also talked about the uh, art dealer who was able to sell an 84,000 blank canvas. And his point was actually reminding me of your book, Rethink Happiness, where you talk about all these like um, pursuits of happiness that don't actually end up. And his point was basically that he was poking fun about how all this really doesn't matter. We just spend so much money on garbage and it's worthless while the people who do the real work in the world get paid very little. That was mm-hmm. the whole point of his um his thing. And so uh, my question to you is, has there ever been a time where you've invested a lot of time and money or energy into something that turned out to be a blank canvas? Mm. You know, just actually not worth it in the end. Not worth it in the end. That's That's a good... That's good. You know, I... I just think, like, if our intentions are good... Even if we get it wrong, God redeems it. Mm-hmm. You know, God makes good out of even things that, like, maybe who knows, right? I really do believe that. And I think we look back on it. It was like, was that worth it? Maybe that was a failure. And God's like, no, the whole time I was teaching you something or showing you something. And so none of it's lost in my eyes. It's all meant for good if we have good intentions in doing it, mm-hmm. for sure. Right on. Yeah. Cool. Question number four. So we talked about St. Ignatius of Antioch, who um, was happy to be martyred and and chewed up by lions for the Lord Jesus. Um, Was there ever a time where you actually felt unsafe because of Jesus? Like maybe you're in a neighborhood or an area and you were sharing the gospel or something, like maybe it wasn't going to be well received? Not enough. Was there ever a time where... No, not enough. Mm-mm. Not to that extent. No, not enough. Well, not to that extent, but 
Yeah, no, not enough. I mean, there have been times where I've risked, you know, but not in, I never thought like my life, you know, like there was something, you know, aggressive that was going to happen. But there were times that I definitely like out of, yes, kind of stepped through that fear of like, you know, helping someone or, or praying with someone or talking to someone or approaching a difficult situation. That type of fear and sort of, you know, you know, the word martyr to be witness mm-hmm. has a lot of this idea of humiliation with it, right? Mm-hmm. And so I've experienced that, but nothing to the sense of like danger physically. Yeah. And now I have been in danger physically, but not from preaching the gospel. Like I broke up a knife fight in a, in a gas station once, but that was could it be a for giant a, pocket knife an, knife fight? Another show. <laughs> and that was like really scary because I had my son with me. But oh, wow. Yeah. But I did. Because of that, like, probably save a guy's life. Wow. Yeah, we can save that for another show. Maybe next week. Sounds fascinating. But there was a pocket knife involved, which it just kind of randomly it thought about. It wasn't 1,500 pounds. <laughs> <laughs> so. All right, question number five. So you just spent a week with, like, average Catholic dudes and some dudes on their first retreat. Ever. And uh, it probably just... You probably had a lot of reflection during that week, you know, just the what guys need to hear, what you know, or what message resonates with men. So my question is, what would you think the average guy sitting in the pew Sunday after Sunday really needs to hear? What message would you want to tell them there's, right now? There's more than just that, you know. Certainly not more as far as the apex of like the Eucharist or the prayer at Mass, but like there's more for our life, and I think a lot of guys like honestly. They go to work, they go to their families, go to bed, do it all over again. Sundays they might go to church, and, and then that's it. And I, I think guys, all guys, I do believe this in my heart of hearts, are sitting there thinking there's got to be more, there's got to be more. And and there is this urge in men to do more, to serve and to like have a mission. And when they don't have a sense of that, I think there is just like, you know, isolation, and we live in silos, and like the statistic that, that – adult men 50 and older like one of their greatest causes of death is loneliness like this they just they get isolated and and that's not you know that's not what we're meant for and so that there is more and i think men respond to that they really do Mm. great all right question number six so we mentioned the importance of mission and um to not complain about the church but like to you know be a part of the solution. So what would you say is a good step one if maybe I've been a complainer, I've just kind of looked on the outside and said, oh, the church isn't doing things right, but you convicted me, Paul. I'm ready to get to work. What's a good step one to get that missionary change uh, your, impulse? Change your attitude. Go on a retreat and pray and like let God just rewire your heart and your mind, right? Your prayer life isn't like focusing on the dysfunction of the church. Your relationship with God and your prayer life is your relationship with God, <laughs> Let him rewire your heart, your mind, clear everything. One of the guys on the retreat works for the church, and, like, he just needed time away. Like, he just needed to detox and, like, reconnect in prayer with God, to realign his heart and his mind so that he can think clearly on how to respond and serve and love, right? We all need that. Like, do that. And then let that be a part of the rhythm of your life every day. Don't get caught up in in all the chaos, is that all of them? That's all of them. That was all six? Yeah. Well, that happened fast. Man, we covered a <laughs> lot of ground. 
Anyway, thanks for being a part of the show, everyone. Uh, again, feel free to share the show. Uh, you can find it on iTunes, SoundCloud, on the podcast. And uh, find out what we're doing. Discover the art of, artofliving.com. And, yeah, thanks to KLFT Radio and all our sponsors and everyone in Kadiana for listening. And we'll be praying for you, and we'll be back next week. God bless.